0: Good morning. My name is Jacob Beach. I'm pastoral resident here at Scarlet City Church. I hope you're all well this morning. It's a holiday weekend, Memorial Day weekend, and I just want to begin by expressing thanks uh, to all of those who've served in our military, especially those who have given the ultimate sacrifice of their lives to service of those here at home. The families that bear that burden, we want you to know you're not forgotten. I also want to uh, express deep gratitude uh, for how thankful uh, my family is for this church community. It's been only about seven months that we've been here, but we felt extremely loved and cared for, especially in the last eight weeks. Uh, my wife uh, gave birth to twins eight weeks ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Not sleeping, we're just chilling. Uh, But people have been introducing themselves, bringing us meals, been engaging with our kids, Uh, just really felt uh, thankful to be here uh, these last few months. We're very overwhelmed at how neighborly and gracious this community has been. Now, speaking of neighborly, Uh, neighbor, this week marks the beginning of a six-week summer series we are doing called Love Your Neighbor. We'll be exploring these ideas And looking at scripture and and thinking about different ideas such as racial reconciliation, ways to engage those who are outside of our church community, ways to act within Christian community and figure out who specifically the Bible says is our neighbor. Now, has anyone here ever had a questionable neighbor? Have you ever lived by someone that really just drove you crazy? Anyone? Raise your hand. Anyone living by someone right now? If your neighbor's here, don't raise your hand. Now, I know we have, okay? Ashley and I lived on the second floor of a three-story apartment building our first year in Charlotte. And let me tell you, uh, we had some pretty awful upstairs neighbors. The first three months we were there, we had the classic heavy foot, okay? A young man who seemed to be walking around in boots made out of cinder blocks every single day. Every time he walked around, we wondered if the Hulk had just turned green, but they moved out, okay? And we were like, this is great, okay? The apartment was empty for two weeks. It was two weeks of bliss, okay? And then the techno enthusiast moved in. This guy's office was right above our daughter's room, and he must have worked from home because, no joke, at least probably three to eight hours a day, morning and evening, music was playing. And not just loud music, but like he he had like an industrial-sized subwoofer just pointed at our apartment at all times, it felt like. We would do the casual knock, you know, we made some complaints to the landlords, and of course, we did the passive-aggressive broom-to-the-ceiling technique. And it was pretty wild. We've all, we often found ourselves so frustrated that nothing was changing the situation, nothing was going to change. We would just cry, okay, literally cry. Imagine... Just lying on the floor, crying, holding each other, and through the ceiling, all you hear is, turn down for what? <laughs> and it's just like, like, that song makes me cry. That's a great song. Now, that is, a, that is a very localized definition of what a neighbor is, okay? Our passage today is more broad than that. It's more than simply, who do we live next door to, as Jesus challenges us to consider what it means to love your neighbor. Now we're going to look at the story of the Good Samaritan. It's a relatively well-known Bible story, or at least the general idea of it. We've got Good Samaritan Hospitals, we've got Samaritan's Purse, uh, we have the famous Rembrandt painting, and even the series finale of Seinfeld is based around the spoofed concept of a Good Samaritan law. So let's actually read our passage this morning. It comes from Luke 10... Verses 25 through 37. If you want to turn there in your Bible or in your phone, I'll also read it. If you have it, say, I have it. Okay, great. Just trying that out. See how it goes. All right. Luke 10, 25 through 37. Let's start in verse 25. I'll be reading from the ESV. It says, And behold... A lawyer stood up and put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And the lawyer responded, He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. Our discussion of what it means to be a neighbor begins here in Luke 10. Jesus has recently began his 10-chapter journey towards Jerusalem, where he know the cross waits for him there. On this journey, he is in a lot of different villages. He's along the road. He's interacting with a lot of different people. So we don't know exactly where he is, but our passage begins saying that a lawyer stood up to put him to the test. So on some level, Jesus would appear to be uh, maybe stopped alongside the road or in a small village interacting with the people there. So we have a lawyer. The fact that he's identified as a lawyer tells us that he's an educated man. He's maybe even one of the smarter people in that region, in that village. He's very, very familiar with the Jewish traditions and law. He asks a question intending to test Jesus. The lawyer has a motive here. He isn't coming to... To Christ without intention. He's trying to test him. He's trying to tempt him into answering the question incorrectly. It is in many ways a challenge. His question is simple. What must I do to inherit eternal life? But Jesus doesn't necessarily take the bait. Jesus is always one step ahead, one step ahead of course. He answers his question with a question. This is classic Jesus. In verse 26, he says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? He's saying, what does your Bible say? What does the law speak to you? You tell me the answer. And the lawyer quotes back to Jesus two Bible verses, Deuteronomy 6, 5, and Leviticus 19:18. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus responds simply, You are correct. Do this and you shall live. Jesus doesn't overcomplicate it. He doesn't make it uh, complex. He simply says, if you love God with all of your being and you love the people that he created, you will inherit eternal life. Now, some might read this passage and think, Jesus, dude, this guy threw you a meatball, okay? It's right down the middle of the plate which is a baseball reference. Okay, I I confirmed that with a baseball coach just this morning. It's not an Italian dinner reference. But maybe in the back of our minds, right, we're thinking, maybe there's an alarm going off that says, Jesus, say Jesus, right? He asked you how to inherit eternal life. Just say me. Say Jesus. But Jesus keeps it cool, knowing exactly what's going on in the situation. He does not respond unbiblically. It's not wrong for him to say that by loving God and by responding to God on every level, especially in the context of our relationships, you reveal that you belong to him and that he is your father and that you have faith in him. One cannot love and belong to God while at the same time hate their neighbor, which we come to find in the next verse seems to be kind of at the heart of the reason the lawyer asked the question initially. Picking up in verse 29, the lawyer says, he was desiring to justify himself, and he said to Jesus, who is my neighbor? Uh Uh-oh. Played right into Jesus' hand. Everybody say, "Uh uh-oh. This dude messed up, okay? He really threw a vegan meatball at Jesus this time, okay? (laughs) He's going to eat him up. The lawyer wants self-justification, okay? He wants to be able to say, see, look at me. I love my neighbor perfectly. This is my neighbor, I love him. I know the law, I love her, I do the law, okay? I love my neighbor. Therefore, I know that I am saved. He wants a definition. He wants it to be so specific and narrow that he can check it off of his list and he can move about his Self reliant lifestyle. He wants Jesus to say, Some people are neighbors, some people aren't neighbors. And this is not like our current culture today, perhaps, always looking to include and exclude people or groups. Now, Jesus is about to turn this intellectual, theological conversation into some real talk about life and how to live it. He responds with a story. A parable, a narrative that is intended to explain the answer to the man's question. And that brings us to the heart of this passage verses 30 through 35. A mere six verses packed with content and relevance. We begin with a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, okay? This is a journey that would have been made very often by Jews in that day as they would go up and down from Jerusalem to worship at the temple. He's traveling along a very, very dangerous road. And this is a 17-mile journey. That's like leaving church today, walking uh, walking out the door and heading north until you get to downtown Delaware. Now, Google Maps says it should take you like five and a half or six hours, so it's not a short distance. And the thing about this road is it was, uh, it was laden with rough terrain and caves. Criminals and thieves would often uh, take advantage of this. In this case, they came upon this dude, they stripped him, beat him, robbed him, threw him in a ditch on the side of the road, and left him to die. And then we have a cast of characters who pass by the man in the ditch who's dying. First, we have a priest a priest, maybe unlike we think of them today, was a very, very significant, very important religious leader. The dying man might have seen him coming and thought, Praise God, a priest is coming, a lover of God, a doer of good, a fellow Jew. Surely this man will help me. But no, the priest passes him by. He goes so far as to cross over to the other side of the road. Perhaps he didn't want to become unclean by touching a man covered in blood. Perhaps he was too busy with ministry and the daily schedule of leading God's people to help this man. He doesn't want to get his hands dirty. And then comes a Levite. This man was very familiar with the Jewish law, an expert of sorts. He likely worked in the temple under the guidance of a priest. And again, this man would have thought that his salvation had arrived the dying man would have thought, surely help is finally here. And to the Jewish listeners of this story, as Jesus tells it, they would have understood that these two men, these two, uh, the, the priest and the Levite would have been the most respected and well-esteemed members of their communities. As they were introduced, they would have thought, these have to be the heroes. These have to be the main characters in this story. And again, it says that the Levite is well passed by the man. The text gives no clear motive of the two, but only that they were not moved to help the man in need. Two supposed heroes of the community left a dying man in the ditch. They did not stop. They are not moved to help or love or care. They have no compassion. And then in verse 33, it says that a Samaritan was journeying by. Now, as Jesus said the word Samaritan in this story, every Jewish ear Listening would have paid attention. You see, the Samaritans and the Jews had history, and it wasn't a particularly happy history. Way, way back when Israel was a united kingdom, kings ruled over them, and after King Solomon died, there was a great battle over who was going to be in charge. The, all, the kingdoms began to split, everyone was fighting for control. So they split into two kingdoms the north, the north, and the south. Now skipping ahead a few hundred years to the end of the northern kingdom story they are conquered by the nation of Assyria. Assyria basically comes in, kills and enslaves, exiles the Jews from the northern kingdom. And there are some Jews who remained behind that assimilated into the Assyrian ruled state. They intermarried among the the Assyrians and basically mixed Jewish and pagan religion and culture. And they were called Samaritans because they remained around the region of Samaria in the northern kingdom. Now, the Jews, specifically, in relating with the Samaritans, considered them half-breeds. They considered them lesser people, people who had turned their back on the Jewish nation and become a separate people. The Jews hated them so much that when they returned from exile to try to rebuild the temple, the Samaritans offered to help. They came down trying to help them but they were turned away. Now, the Samaritans weren't necessarily friendly to the Jews either, but they were severely mistreated by the Jews. Now, that's the Cliff Notes version of the history between the two groups. It's not like there was any love between them, but rather they despised each other. In fact, so much so we we see this in John 8 when the Pharisees and Jewish scholars are... Accusing Jesus of being crazy and of blasphemy, they say to him in John 8, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and you have a demon? That's the accusation. Demon-possessed and Samaritan. So Jesus casually dropping a Samaritan sauntered on by, that would be a very significant meaning to the hearers of this story. The Samaritans, they're the bad guys, right? They're not with us. They aren't our people. They're others. They're outsiders. They're foreigners. They're traitors. Keep them away from us. But Jesus says that the Samaritan arrives on the scene, and when he sees the dying man, he has great pity on him. And he is filled with compassion for the man. He grabs him up, bandages him up, puts him on his donkey, takes him to a safe place, and he cares for him for the night. And the next day, he pays the innkeeper to keep the man and promises to return to pay for any extra cost of bringing the man back to health. Jesus concludes this story with another question. Which of these three do you think acted neighborly towards this man? And the lawyer's response, you see, he can't even bring himself to say the Samaritan. He can't even say that. He says, the one who showed him mercy. The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus says, You go and do likewise. So we look at this story, the Good Samaritan, and we ask ourselves, What does it mean for us today? What can the church reap from this passage? And I think it answers two very important questions. The first question is Who is our neighbor? Jesus is making the point in this story that a neighbor is basically anyone. It could be someone you live beside, it could be a friend, it could be someone from your church. It might be obvious and easy to see, but it could also be a stranger, it could be a foreigner. It could be someone in need. It could be someone who needs encouragement. It could be someone who hates you. It could be someone who's very different from you. It could be an enemy. The Samaritans were natural enemies of the Jews. But when this Samaritan comes upon this man in need, he recognizes him as his neighbor. A neighbor is anyone that we can give aid to to give voice to, who needs an ear to hear them, someone to pick them up, needs someone to, to pick them up physically or emotionally. This story shows us two people who did not know how to recognize a neighbor, a priest who's a professional person of faith and a Levite who knows all the theology and religious law of the day. They had it all in their heads but their actions did not match. They talked the talk, but they didn't walk the walk. They didn't have compassion. They didn't see others as their neighbor. Our neighbor is anyone that we see. It could be someone we've known for years, or it could be someone that we just met. What the Samaritan did that was important was value human life. The religious travelers didn't do that. They didn't recognize this man's life as valuable, as a human being made in the image of God. I think today in our culture, we're very prone to this, right? We're prone to analyzing and judging the lifestyles and worldviews of others. When Jesus calls us to love our enemies... We throw half of that right out the window because maybe that person over there, they don't have the right theology in our minds, right? Maybe they haven't quite worked as hard as we have in our life. Maybe they seem weird or dirty or a burden to us. We're constantly concerned with who thinks right and wrong before we act in love or compassion, especially the church. We don't have the best track record. And we do this all the time. We look at people and we don't see them as our neighbor. Jesus flips that right on its head. In answering the lawyer's question about who is my neighbor, Jesus asks at the end of the parable, who was the neighbor to the man in the ditch? He's saying, worry less about who is your neighbor and worry more about being a good neighbor to those around you. Everyone is your neighbor. So get on being being neighborly to them. Be neighborly to those who are in need. Be unbiased in choosing who you show that neighborly love and care towards. That's who our neighbor is. And I think the second answer we get from this passage is to the question, how do we love? What does loving our neighbor look like? The Samaritan is described as simply coming upon the situation and having compassion. And that compassion moves him to action. The takeaway from this passage is not simply or merely be like the Samaritan, but rather it's calling us to act in compassion. The unlikely example in the story, right, the Samaritan merely comes to the situation and has compassion, and Jesus says, "'Go and do likewise.'" It's a simple command, go and do likewise. Jesus tells the lawyer right from the outset that inheriting eternal life is in some way connected to loving God and loving others. Loving your neighbor is a natural outgrowth of what God provides when people belong to him, when they love him and are loved by him. He isn't saying, go, have compassion on your neighbor, and God will finally accept you. That's backwards. That's reversed. Jesus is saying those who already belong to God, those who are loved by him and are part of his family, they will naturally, out of that love, go and do likewise, loving others. For Christians, that means that our love for others flows out of the love for God, our love for God and his love for us. Jenny already mentioned it earlier. 1 John 4.19 puts it very simply, very succinctly. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. The ability to love and care for our neighbor is supplied by the Holy Spirit. The fruits of the Spirit, right? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, Uh, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, those things come to us from God. And many of them play out relationally with other people, right? We don't do them on our own and then ask God to accept our loving actions. No, we do these things because God loves us and because the Spirit works in us and through us to act in love. And the doing of that love, the, the, the outgrowth of that love, is action-oriented. It's not something that we can do without acting at all. I want to look at what, what I'm kind of calling, and I'm sure someone else thought of this verse, but what I'm calling the Samaritan verbs. Okay, if you look at verses 33 through 35, these are the Samaritan verbs. It says that he had compassion. He went to him. He bound up his wounds. He poured oil and and wine, He set the man on his own donkey. He brought him to safety. He took care of him. He took out money and gave it to the innkeeper. He promised to repay him, and he promised that he would come back. He feels, he goes, he bounds, he pours, he sets, he cares, he brings, he pays, he gives, he repays, and he returns. Now, that's a lot of action words, and Jesus' encouragement is, go and do likewise. It's important that we heed that command to go and do likewise. This isn't a guilt trip. This isn't condemnation that you aren't doing enough to merit your salvation. Jesus is not saying, if you do enough, excuse me, if you don't do enough, then I will revoke your faith in me, and I will cast you aside. No. No. Jesus is calling us, he's commanding us, he's encouraging us to go and do likewise. He's imploring us to go, get involved in loving our neighbors. We should be asking ourselves right now, this afternoon, this week, this year, who needs compassion? Who needs me to go to them? Whose physical or emotional or spiritual or relational wounds Could I help bind up? Who can I share a glass of wine or a meal with? Who needs to be brought somewhere? Who needs to be cared for? Who can I help pay for something? Who can I give some time or energy to? Who can I return to? The Samaritan doesn't merely throw money at the problem. Though his money was required, his investment of money included Investment of his life, his time, and his energy. He was personally invested in his neighboring. Loving our neighbors requires investment. Time, care, compassion. And I don't want you to leave here today thinking about how you can immediately go out today and solve world hunger, how you can eliminate the drug problem in Columbus, how you can house every homeless person in your neighborhood, Though those are all great causes and worth our investment. I don't want you to think leaving here, man, I don't do anything. Am I even a Christian? Does God hate me because I have not loved my neighbor well? No, I want you to leave here today with eyes and ears. Eyes and ears that see and hear neighbors everywhere. It takes eyes and ears to see those around you, but above all, love requires compassion. The priest and the Levite, they had eyes and ears. They observed the exact same thing, the exact same thing that the Samaritan did, but their hearts were not moved. They did not have compassion. They were not moved to action. Neighbors are people who have hearts that feel and see, and hear, and serve. There's so many people in this world who are hurting and who are experiencing painful situations. They're living among these difficulties. And you can't fix everything. You can't fix everyone in every place. You can't help everyone. But you can love someone. You can help someone. Go and do likewise. Likewise. It's easy, I think, for us to read this story and to see ourselves in different places in it. We might think of ourselves as the lawyer who wants to naturally self-justify and, and, and hope and know uh, in our own self-reliance that we are uh, safe, that we're good, that we're saved, that we're justified, that we're good enough to get by. We might see ourselves in the priest or the Levite sometimes too busy to care or show compassion, We might look to the example of the Samaritan and hope that we can have that same kind of compassion. But in conclusion, I want all of us to recognize next time we read this story, next time we think of this story, that spiritually we should identify most with the man who's in the ditch. Beaten down by the world, broken, a lost cause, sinful, far from God. Ephesians 2 describes those apart from Christ as dead in our trespasses and sins. But the good news of the gospel, and that's that's at the core of our Christian faith, is this. When we were far from God, dead, hopeless, despairing, Christ died for us. Jesus Christ, the ultimate good Samaritan, had compassion. He went out of his way when he didn't have to. He bandaged our broken souls. He lifted us up out of the ditch that would be our grave. And he put us on his shoulders. And he gave us life. He purchased our beaten down spirits through his sacrificial death on the cross. And he doesn't require that we be perfect people, he doesn't require that we pull ourselves up out of the ditch. He asks us only to believe in him, to trust in him, to love him. He accepts us on his own merit, not on our own. So if you call him Lord today, then heed his call towards compassionate love toward your neighbor. Because when you were dead yourself, Jesus first picked you up in compassionate love and he carried you to salvation. The greatest commandment is that we love God, but the second greatest commandment is that we love others. Go and do likewise. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you that When we were in the ditch, Lord, you picked us up. You loved us before we ever loved you. And that salvation, Lord, comes as a free gift that you give to us by faith. And God, as we go from here, Lord, I pray that it is out of that love, it is out of what is in our hearts that you have done for us, Lord, that we would be able to love and show compassion to others. God, I pray as we go from here, Lord, you would open our eyes to see, Lord. You would open our ears to hear the neighbors around us, Lord. And that we would heed the second greatest commandment, Lord, to love our neighbors, Lord. And God, I pray that, Lord, I I pray that Satan doesn't use this message either, Lord, to to discourage us, Lord, or to, to, to lead us further into guilt, God. Lord, I pray that you would silence him. And today you would encourage us, Lord, in knowing that we belong to you. And that means that we have the freedom and the ability to love and care for others. Let us go and do likewise. In your name we pray, amen.